in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these, except Michael, your prince. Father God, we would pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you have promised to be the one to illumine our minds, to understand your word, that that would happen now. That, Lord, we're taking a look at some deep-end prophecy stuff in this series, and we do so with a lot of humility and a lot of openness. 
when it comes to what you have said and what you are saying to us. And so, God, I pray that uh, you would speak now by the power of your Spirit to our minds and our hearts, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we dive into Daniel 10, which was just read for you right now, I want you to think of all the incredible major advancements that have hit our world in the last 100 years. I mean, truly, we live in a time like none other in the history of the world. About 100 years ago, in 1901, the first telegraph signal was sent. Then two years later, the Wright brothers flew their plane. In 1905, Einstein published his special theory of relativity. In 1909, we cured syphilis. In 1913, Niels Bohr and Ernest Rutherford discovered the structure of the atom. That same year, Henry Ford made the mass production line. In 1920 was the first radio broadcast. In 1922, we discovered insulin. In 1923, we invented the television camera. And then throughout most of the 1920s, we saw things like these appear, the vacuum cleaner, the electric shaver, the spin dryer, the electric refrigerator, even the ability to freeze foods like we do today. In 1924, Edwin Hubble discovers the first galaxy besides our own. In 1927, the Big Bang Theory of the Universe was put forward. In 1928, we discovered pen pen penicillin. And then in 1935, this affects a lot of you, we invented nylon and plastics. And so that was done about, what, 65, 75 years ago. In 1942, we discovered the first controlled nuclear reaction. In 1945, we made the atomic bomb. In 1950, we learned how to treat leukemia with chemotherapy. In 1952, we cured polio. In 1953, we discovered the structure of DNA. In 1954, we did the first kidney transplant. 1967, the first human heart transplant. That same year, we discovered pulsars. In 1970, we did our first CAT scan. In 1971, the first commercial computer microprocessor was invented. In 1990, the World Wide Web came into being, and Al Gore wasn't anywhere around. In 1996, Dolly the Sheep was duplicated or cloned. And then in 2001, we mapped the genome. Imagine that. And just this year, I was reading the other day, I assume this is true, that the J. Craig Ventner Institute has created the first synthetic bacteria cell. Folks, no matter how you slice it, you and I have lived in a world that over the last 100 years has seen more life-giving, life-enhancing, life-extending, and life-understanding advancements than any other time period in the known history of the world. And it has absolutely changed the way that you and I live and function on a daily level, and as we're going to talk about this morning, even the way that we view and see reality. In short, culture watchers talk about three major revolutions that we have been through just within the last 150 years in the Western world. Look up here on the screen. The first one was what we call the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s. Machines, textiles, mining, milling, all led to incredible increases in productivity. And then from the late 1800s to about 1940, 1950, was the technological revolution. This is what most of you have benefited from. Planes, trains, automobiles. There should be a movie on that. Medical advances, antibiotics, x-rays, agricultural advances when it comes to food preparation and food distribution. Even the telephone changed the way that communication is done in this world. And then that led to the third revolution that you and I are still in today, and it's the digital revolution. The computer age, the internet, MRIs, CAT scans. I mean, it's forever changed our lives medically and on a communication level. 
I mean, folks, if you had to describe it all to somebody totally alien to our world, you'd most likely have to say that we have simply been able to discover and understand things about the physical universe that previous generations were barely able to conceive of, let alone dream about. It's enhanced our standard of living, even extended our years of living in profound ways to the point that ease and comfort are now expectations that our children have, not just things that our grandparents might have hoped for. I mean, truly, it's been a world like no other ever in this history of the known world. And though certainly none of this is at all bad, I mean, very few cultures today would shun electricity or dis medical advances or mass travel or clean food or water or personal computers, one of the dangerous byproducts that I need you to think about this morning is that our journey over the last 100 years has primarily been about focusing on the physical and material universe. And what many have noted is that this has caused us to not be as sharp about the unseen spiritual world. Isn't that true? In other words, I don't think it's a coincidence that as culture has gone up like this on a material, physical level, over the last 100 years, we've seen spirituality not only go down, but become more diverse and more uh, discussed and even more confused about in most people's minds than, again, the 18 to 1900 years before that. In other words, Western culture has done an admirable job of exploring the physical universe, but has done so at the risk of neglecting the spiritual world, and we've done so to our own demise and downfall. And make no mistake, folks, Christians are just as susceptible to this as anybody else. I mean, think about it. The average Christian church today has everything from PowerPoint to business plans to building campaigns to digital Christian music to publishing their own books to managing payrolls and volunteer hours when at the same time they struggle to make a fully devoted follower of Christ. And this should tip us all off to the fact that if we're not real careful, the same trap that our culture has fallen into when it comes to overdosing on all the physical realities of this world might happen to us as well as we take our eye off the spiritual ball that God has placed before us. And what you need to know, folks, is that in Daniel's day, 2,500 years ago, it wasn't much different. It really wasn't. By the time chapter 10 comes around that we just read earlier, it's about 536 B.C. The Israelites, as we know, have been in captivity in Babylon, what is now modern-day Iraq, for just over 70 years. Daniel's now an old man. He's been a prophet for the nation Israel all of his life, living in captivity most of his adult life. And yet, as we've noted in previous weeks, things are finally starting to look up, right? I mean, just a couple of years earlier, in 538 B.C., the Persian king, who had defeated the Babylonian king, had agreed to allow the Israelites to return to Israel so that they could rebuild their city, Jerusalem, and rebuild the temple, thus rebuilding their entire lives. Don't miss this, folks. It would be a time of wonderful focus on many physical things for them. You can read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah. A town, Jerusalem, gets rebuilt. A wall around Jerusalem gets rebuilt. A physical temple gets rebuilt. And it would take scores of years to accomplish this and lots of labor and man hours. 
It consumed their focus, and it was truly a time of life-giving, life-enhancing, physical and material concentration for the Israelites, and one that was needed, arguably, after 70 years of destruction and suffering. And yet in the midst of all of it, they too ran the risk of seeing reality primarily in terms of bricks and mortar. They did. I mean, it was a different age than today, but they ran the risk of also seeing reality as a physical thing and not a spiritual thing that God created reality to also be. And so isn't it interesting that Daniel chapter 10, a chapter that takes place just two years into some of them returning to Israel to rebuild their lives, is all about the spiritual reality that exists behind the physical world that we all live and breathe in. I don't think that's a coincidence. In Daniel chapter 10, you're going to find no prophecy given at all in a group of chapters that are all about prophecy. No, what chapter 10 is about is giving Daniel a peek, and us a peek, into the spiritual realm that we're going to see interplays with the physical realm and is just as real as the physical realm. It's like God is saying to Daniel and the Israelites, hey, I've allowed you and even caused you to return to your homeland, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land full of potential ease and comfort. And you're going to utilize lots of physical resources to make this happen, stone and bricks and wood, even fine linens and precious metals. But allow me to take this moment to speak to you through Daniel and his experiences to remind you of the real reality, the spiritual focus that is going on in the midst of all of this physical stuff that you're involved in. That's precisely, folks, what Daniel is doing here, or God's doing here in Daniel chapter 10. It's a peek behind the scenes into the spiritual realm, and I'm telling you, nothing could be more re relevant to you and me today. And so in our time remaining, what I want to do is I want you to notice three key truths that Daniel 10 teaches us about physical and spiritual reality. Three truths that can do nothing but ground you and me in the real reality that God wants his followers, us as his followers, to both understand and be involved in. So look up here on the screen. Here's the first thing. And that is that reality is not just physical, it is also spiritual. And an unseen battle wages every day over circumstances here on earth. Did you know that? I don't mean to freak you out. I know some of you are new to this stuff, but I'm telling you, this is what Daniel 10 and all of the Bible is going to affirm to us, and that is that reality is not just physical, though we're mired in a physical world with physical bodies, but it's also spiritual, and even more important, an unseen battle wages over the circumstances here on earth every day. So to get this, let's remind ourselves of what's happening here in Daniel chapter 10. And you might remember from it being read earlier, Daniel is still back in Babylon. He's an old man. He's about 85 years old, so he's not going to travel back to Jerusalem. And at this point, he's most likely about 20 miles from the capital on the famous Tigris River. And he's seeking God in somber prayer while also fasting from meat and wine, most likely living on just bread and water. In other words, in typical Daniel style, he's really serious about knowing and following God. That's his M.O. And at this point, what we assume to be an angel appears to him. Some people argue that this is God who appears to him, but I can't be God because as we're going to see in a minute here, this angel was delayed in getting to Daniel because he was in conflict with some other demonic beings and he was delayed 
And I hardly think that anybody could delay God. Amen? So this is not God is talking about here. Most commentators take this to be an angel that is being referred to here. And, uh, and in this experience, Daniel sees the angel himself, but his companions don't see the angel. They just sense the angel's presence, and they're massively freaked out, and they run and hide. And this leaves Daniel alone to interact with the angel. And Daniel's kind of freaking out himself, as any of us would be, and he falls on his face, zapped of all strength. And at this point, the angel touches Daniel, hang on to that, and then speaks to him, hang on to that, and reminds him that he is greatly loved by God, a message that Daniel also got from a different angel in chapter 9, and he tells him to not fear and to stand up. And so Daniel does this, and he's still kind of shaky, and at this point, the angel gets to the crux of the entire visit and tells him why he is here. Look at verses 12 to 14 of Daniel 10. Look up here on the screen. This is very revealing. The angel says, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, tune into this, folks. When it says there in verse 13 that this angel was withstood for 21 days by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and then was aided by Michael, one of the chief princes, what almost every Bible expert worth his or her weight in gold says is happening here is that that's referring to spiritual beings, in one sense demonic, and obviously with Michael, a good angelic being. In other words, that phrase, prince of the kingdom of Persia, is not referring to Cyrus or one of the other kings of Persia. No, it's referring to a demonic being that had been assigned to Persia to, to aid them in the evil things that they were doing in the Middle East at that time. And then there were also good angelic forces, like Michael mentioned here, Gabriel in the last chapter, and the unnamed angel here, who were working to aid Israel in their fight for freedom and to rebuild their lives. In other words, don't miss this. Behind the scenes, not realized by the secular Persian nation itself, nor even by many in Israel at that time, there was an entire spiritual world complete with personality, with resistance, with conflict, all surrounding good versus evil, God versus Satan, and this unseen but very felt spiritual world was influencing and affecting the spiritual world far more than anyone realized at that time. It would tell us all the way in verse 1 of this chapter that it would be describing a great conflict, and sure enough it does, but not just a great physical conflict, but a spiritual conflict that even interacts with the physical world. It describes a conflict going on between God's righteous angels and the evil demonic angels that were influencing Persia. And then interestingly, it's even going to give us a head up, heads up in verse 20 that in the next leg of history, they're going to do battle with the prince of Greece, which is Alexander the Great's army. In short, this whole chapter is about giving us a peek into the unseen but very real spiritual world and spiritual battle that occurs in 
nations and cultures, even including individual spirits that are assigned by both God and Satan to nudge and affect human physical happenings. I mean, I don't mean to freak some of you out with this stuff, and we don't usually talk about it, even here at Scottsdale Bible, but I'm telling you folks, I'm, I'm exegeting the word correctly. I've looked at this passage every which way you can, and this passage is about spiritual battle, and it's about God wanting to clue Daniel into what's happening in the spiritual realm behind the scenes. In fact, if you're not convinced, just look at the flow of Daniel 10 here, and notice the experiential nature Daniel has with the spiritual realm. It says in verse 8 that he sees behind the scenes when he had the vision of the righteous angel in verses 4 through 8. Then it says in verse 9 that he hears the angel's voice. Then it says in verse 10 that the angel actually touched him. And even his companions, though he didn't see and touch the angel, had a physical sensation of the spiritual realm. And then it says in verses 11 through 14, as we just saw, that Daniel begins to understand what's happening behind the scenes. And then he even is strengthened in verses 16 to 19 by the angel himself on a physical level. And so add all this up, folks, seeing, hearing, touching, understanding, even experiencing the spiritual realm. This is what's happening to Daniel. Some 25 years ago in the year 536 B.C., as his nation was focused on all the physical things happening in and around them, Daniel got a taste of the spiritual realm, the real reality in which God makes it clear in this chapter is happening all the time in normal, everyday, mundane life as we know it. There's spiritual stuff going on behind the scenes. And folks, the point is clear, and that is that you and I would be naive at best and totally foolish at worst to think that this stuff is not real and that it's not still happening today amidst all of our human and physical and material activities, it still is. You know, some 500 years after Daniel wrote, Paul the Apostle, a very highly educated and sophisticated man himself, would say this in his letter to the Ephesians. Look up here on the screen, Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, and I quote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning physical and material, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, make no mistake, folks. This stuff is real. The spiritual, both good and bad, affects the physical. And we do great injustice to our understanding of reality by not recognizing and understanding the unseen but yet very genuine, authentic, spiritual things going on in and around us. You know, as I was uh, kind of neck deep in Daniel this week in my study time, I got to this point in my study and I thought, you know, really this begs a whole discussion about angels and demons that, that are found in the Bible. And though that's probably for another message, I, I did want to give you just a very, very quick primer, kind of just a three or four minute capsulization of what the Bible does affirm about this idea of spiritual beings, angels and demons, that, that we hear so much about today. And let me just preface before we dive into this with this, and that is that this is Scottsdale Bible Church, meaning the only book that we look to for our source of information about God is the... Bible. Good, you guys got that one right. And, and so really all we should be care about when it comes to our understanding of the angelic realm is what the Bible says. 
And so I'm just going to give you a quick primer, four things that the Bible affirms about this idea of angels and demons. First, it tells us that angels are real. They are real. I know that sounds so simple, but it's all over the Bible. In fact, did you know that there are over 50 positive angelic vision visits in the Bible? 50 times in the Bible, angels visited people. Now, in one sense, that seems like a lot. But what you have to remember is that the Bible spans a period of time of what it's writing about of about 4,000 years. So do the math. That means an angelic visit about once every 80 years, which means the chances of you getting one really slim. But it does happen. Second thing, I just I hate to pop your bubble, let's just be honest. Second thing that, that it does say, however, is that there are good and evil angels. The Bible affirms that very clearly. In fact, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he talked a lot about demons, and he spoke to personal evil, and he cast out personal evil that was even living inside individuals. Can you imagine? The Bible talks about the fact that there is good versus evil behind the scenes of our physical universe, and that it's very real, and it even has personality attached to it. We don't have time to get into this this morning or today, but most Christians make a distinction in a good way between oppression and possession when it comes to evil spirits. Simply put, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus, you cannot be possessed by evil because you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that you can't be oppressed by evil. And some of you, if not many of you, have experienced that at times. I know I have where you feel a dark oppression come over your spirit at times, especially as we're going to see in the end here when you're engaged in spiritual battle. Third thing that the Bible affirms is that angels influence the affairs of men, and get this, even governments and individuals. Man, i got to tell you, this one is all over the Bible. Psalm 91, verse 11, couldn't be more clear when it says, For he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Isn't that cool? There's actually an entire angelic realm out there that, that ministers to the saints in times of need. Now, we've got to be real careful here. I mean, Hebrews 1.14 does make it clear that angels are given to help saints who will inherit salvation. We see examples where Peter was saved by an angel. In Acts chapter 12, Jesus was ministered to by angels. In Matthew 18, Jesus even says that children are protected by angels. And yet one of the things the Bible makes clear is that we're not to pray to angels, we're not to worship angels. It doesn't talk about every human being having their own guardian angel that you talk to and interact with. No, that stuff isn't found anywhere in the Bible. It simply says that on a general level, angels are real. They do serve the saints, but most of the time, you're not going to know it. Most of the time, it's done behind the scenes, and you are to look to Jesus, worship Jesus, and follow Jesus. That's what the Bible makes clear. Because here's the fourth thing that the Bible tells us, and that is that when it comes to these angels and demons, there is a constant cosmic conflict that involves believers and even unbelievers with the unseen spiritual realm. Again, it's Ephesians 6, 12. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. That's not the real reality. No, the real reality is the, the unseen spiritual realm that's going on all the time. And the point of Daniel 10 is that we would recognize it and be aware of it, and as we're going to see in a second here, engage in the battle. You know, it's interesting, some if not many of us have been so imbued with a materialist-only understanding of the world around us, especially in the western part of the world, that we fail to realize 
that there are many other parts of the world that fully get and understand this battle for human souls. In other words, if you were to talk to believers from China or, say, Africa or many in the Middle East and other parts of the world where they're not so focused on material things, you would hear them talk a lot more about this battle than we do today. It's fascinating. From 1991 to 2007, Fuller Theological Seminary did a groundbreaking study on why Muslims convert to Christianity. And during this time period of almost 16, 17 years, they surveyed 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity, and they asked them why they converted. This survey spanned over 30 different ethnic, or 50 different ethnic groups from 30 different countries. And I want to read for you the nine top reasons very quickly that a Muslim would convert to Christianity. This is very revealing for you and I today. First, Christians practiced what they preached. When they saw that, they wanted to convert. Secondly, Christians appeared to have loving marriages in which women were treated as equals. Isn't that interesting? Three, Christian-to-Christian violence was less prominent than Muslim-to-Muslim violence. Four, the prayers of Christians, they observed, would actually heal those in need and deliver others from demonic powers. Five, the Quran had produced profound disillusionment because it accentuated God's punishment more than his love and the use of violence to impose Islamic law. Number six, interesting, God had used visions and dreams to influence a Muslim's conversion to Christ. Ravi Zacharias, one of the most intellectual and well-known apologists for the Christian faith today, was born in India. And when you read his autobiography about growing up in a Hindu country and how God used the Word of God but also this unseen spiritual realm to lead him to Christ through dreams and visions, it, it just blows you away. That stuff is real. Seventh reason that a Muslim would want to convert to Christianity is that Muslims can never be certain of their forgiveness and salvation as Christians can. Eight, as they read the Bible, the converts had been convicted of its truth. And nine, and most endearing to me, the converts were attracted to the idea of God's unconditional love. Does that not touch you? Folks, don't tell me that there aren't people out there in the world today, like billions of them, who do not realize the battle that Daniel 10 describes, and from both their pre-Christian days to now as followers of Jesus, they recognize what is happening all the while. It just tends to be us in the western part of the world that get so mired in the physical that we forget the spiritual. John Owen, the great 17th century English Puritan, once said it this way in his day about spiritual battle. Look up here on the screen. He said, however strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be safe, kept safe from the enemy. Traitors occupy our own hearts, ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all. C.S. Lewis, probably one of the foremost defenders of the Christian faith in the 20th century, is even more clear in talking about this spiritual battle. Look up here on the screen. I love this quote. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. I love that last phrase. They hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. In other words, this unseen spiritual battle is real, folks, 
And you can either bury your head in the sands or get too overly focused on it, as some do. And the reality is either extreme is wrong. As we're going to see in a minute, what God is concerned about is that we are aware of this battle, engaged in it, but keeping our eyes on the ball, on Jesus and his kingdom. And so a proper biblical balance and perspective is needed. And this brings us to the second and third key things that Daniel teaches us here. And we're going to go quicker through these things. And that is that we don't need to get overly obsessed about this. We don't need to freak out and run like Daniel's companions did. No, we simply need to realize and bank on two key facts about this unseen but nevertheless very authentic spiritual realm. And this is points two and three on your outline. And so the second thing is this, and that is to realize that God will ultimately win the war. Man, this is why we don't need to be afraid of spiritual battle. Because God's already declared the outcome at the beginning. And as we've been learning in this series, one of the whole points of prophecy is to let us know what's coming down the pike, the good and the bad, but mostly to let us know that at the end of the day, God's already declared himself the winner. You know, it's interesting, in verses 12 through 14 that we looked at earlier, it says that this unnamed angel was delayed for three weeks while engaging in spiritual battle, as we said, with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And one of the things that Bible experts wrestle with, they kind of wrestle with really what are seemingly small things, but to them are big things, is, is why would God allow a spiritual battle like this to occur, right? In other words, he's God. He's already won the war. So why is he allowing the shenanigans to continue when it comes to this spiritual battle? It's probably a good question to ask. John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, said that the reason this battle continues that God allows it is to create patience and faith in his saints. That as we pray, as we'll see in a few minutes here, for the battle going on, it creates patience and character and faith in us. I think Calvin's got a point. Other people argue that it's about free will, that will is very real in this universe still, and, and that the angelic realm has will too, and so God is just simply allowing good and evil will to run its course. There might be some merit in that as well. And yet the reality is we don't know completely why God allows all this to continue, and yet what everybody agrees on is this point before us here this morning, and that is that no matter how you answer the why question, the what question is really easy. And the what is, God's going to win the war. God's going to win the war. At the end of the day, his kingdom will prevail, and there is no stopping it. So as we're going to see in a minute, you might as well get on the right side now. And that's what the Bible affirms to you and to me. J.R.R. Tolkien, as many of you know, was the author of the famous Lord of the Rings that became very famous movies over the last 15 years. And in one of his personal writings, look up here on the screen, look at what he says. I, I love this quote. He says, no man can estimate what is really happening at the present. All we do know, and that to a large extent by direct experience, is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain. Always preparing, you're preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. And it's true. This is what Daniel 10 is setting us up for, for Daniel 11 and 12, in which it's going to make clear that though the future contains lots of ups and downs, we've been exploring that in this series, in the end, make no mistake, have full faith and confidence. God is in control. He knows the future, and he wins. So add up where we've come to this morning, folks. 
In a world and culture overdosing on physical reality, God comes along and tells us that the spiritual world is also very real. In fact, it's the real reality. It's made up of good and evil, angelic beings that are in conflict, conflict that even interplays with the machinations of this world. And though there are up and down battles, God's going to win the war. And so that only leaves one question for you and I, and it's probably the most practical question this morning, and that is, so what are we to do about all this? What does God want from you and from me once we get a right understanding of Daniel 10? And the answer isn't rocket science, folks. And that is simply that God wants us to be aware and in tune with this unseen battle that, wage, that rages and engage our spirit in the battle for good and for God's kingdom. That's what he wants. And so in a very practical way, here then is the third thing that Daniel 10 teaches us, and that is this, that rightly directed faith, and we're going to define that as faith in Jesus, is what will put you on the right side of the battle. Man, this is the most important thing that some of you need to walk away with, or some of us need to walk away with this morning, and that is that rightly directed faith is what's going to put us on the right side of the battle. And so one last time, notice with me what's happening here in Daniel 10. The angel says to Daniel in verse 11, this is very instructive for us, he says, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. And then in verse 19, the same angel says to Daniel, be strong and of good courage. So what does God want from you? He wants you to stand up, to listen to his truth and his words, to be strong and of good courage and to engage in the battle. That's what he wants. And folks, the weapons that we have at our disposal are powerful. You should read about it sometime in Ephesians chapter 6 and other parts of the Bible. The weapons that you and I have for spiritual battle right before us, right at our disposal, ensure that we have victory in almost every battle that we engage in. What are some of these weapons? Well, faith is the first weapon we have. Faith, as I said, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith in the Holy Spirit as the only one to give us power and strength to follow God. Faith that God will never forsake you nor leave you. Faith that his purposes always prevail. Think about it, folks. You've got 24-7 always available faith as a tool in fighting this battle. And as a foundation for this, see, secondly, you have truth. Truth that God exists, truth that he is good, truth that he has revealed himself in the word, the Bible, truth that instructs us about who he is and what he is about, truth that tells us how to have a godly marriage, how to raise pretty good kids, how to share a faith with lost friends. Yeah, I said pretty good kids. How to share a faith with lost friends, how to know right from wrong, how to use your money, how to approach lost people. I mean, this book is filled with truth. 66 books, it'll take you an entire lifetime to read, understand, and apply in your life. He's given you truth. Thirdly, he's given you righteousness as a tool, as a weapon. The fact that God is shaping us in, into the image of his son, Christ, every day, that he's molding us into the people that he wants us to be. And make no mistake, I'm not just talking about moral righteousness, though that's part of it. The Bible actually defines righteousness as you being more loving, more faith-filled, more other-centered, more caring, more just, that kind of righteousness. Fourth and very practical, we have prayer. Let's not overlook this one. You and I have the ability through Jesus Christ to talk to God on a regular basis. In fact, it hit me this week. I thought, we have unlimited anytime minutes with God. Did you know that? 
I mean, you see all these commercials, you know, that argue, Matt, don't you? You know, for like, you know, you get 500 minutes or 1,000 minutes or whatever. That's I was thinking, no, we got like unlimited minutes with God. And that's what he has said to you and I. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's because of what Christ has done for us. The pathway now to prayer is open to God. And he hears our prayers, and it's a key way in engaging in the battle. We pray for those who are hurting. We pray for ourselves. We pray to resist temptation. We pray in the midst of the battle. That's how we engage. And then lastly, but certainly not finally, we have grace. You're going to like this one. The fact that even when we fail to use the weapons at our disposal properly, like when we struggle with our faith or we don't recognize truth as quick as we should or we falter in our righteousness or when our prayers get cold and weak, God says he gives us grace as his followers in the form of forgiveness and kindness and empathy. As Romans 2 verse 4 says so beautifully that it's his kindness, his grace that leads us to repentance. Isn't that cool? The fact that even when you mess up, even after 30 years of being a Christian, I've been one 30 years next year, I still say to God, I can't believe how far I still have to go. He says, just walk with me, Jamie. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. We got grace. In short, folks, when it comes to spiritual battle, I love how James chapter 4, verse 7 puts it when it says this. Look up here on the screen. And I ask you, could it be so simple? Listen to this. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee for you. Could it be that simple? Submit and resist. And I would suggest to you that it is. That we are to submit to God by engaging our faith in Christ. We need to submit to him by honoring him in his word. We need to submit by living a holy and righteous and loving life. We submit through our anytime prayers to God. We submit through relying solely upon his grace. And all the while, we resist. That's our defensive posture. We resist temptation. We resist falsehood. We resist unrighteousness. We resist shutting down on God. And we resist, as the book of Jonah says, forfeiting the grace that could be ours. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so the only thing that will stop any of us is if we refuse to engage in the battle. You got to get out of the pew and onto the playing field. One last illustration, and we're done. In his book, The Divine Intruder, James Edwards tells a story of something that happened during the Civil War that I found very humorous. William McLean was a small farmer in the Shenandoah Valley in the year 1861. And in the spring of that year, two powerful armies met on his property, the Union Army under General McDowell and the Confederate Army under General Beauregard. And the bloodiest war in American history began there at Bull Run in a creek that ran across McLean's property. And McLean was not at all sure why this war had started and why the armies were fighting, but he was quite sure that he didn't want this to happen on his property and he didn't want to be a part of this battle at all. And so he knew he couldn't change the course of the war, but he knew that he could at least not be a part of it, so he decided to sell his property at the beginning of the Civil War and move to a place where nobody could ever find him. And so he chose one of the most obscure places in the entire country. It was an old house in the village of Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. Do you all see where this is going? Four years later, while General Grant was pursuing General Lee through Virginia, in Appomattox County, Grant sent a message to Lee asking him to meet and to sign a truce and surrender. 
And the place that they met to sign the truce that ended the Civil War was Wilmer McLean's living room. And as the story says, some things you cannot get away from. And it's true. We've all experienced that in life. And so I ask you, why do so many Christians then try to not engage in spiritual battle? My friend Larry Crabb calls it good enough Christianity. He says that the average Christian in America is content just to be good enough to come to church, sit in a pew, give a little money, attend a Bible study, hear a good sermon, sing a few songs, and try to be as good as they can throughout the week. And then they start the whole thing over the next week. It's called good enough Christianity. And I sure hope that Scottsdale Bible Church, that us as the congregation of this church are beyond that. I hope that we're mature enough believers to realize, as Daniel 10 has shown us, that there's a battle out there. It's a battle that's way beyond brewing. It's a battle for the soul of every lost friend you have. It's a battle for your continued Christian life. And we engage in the battle through ongoing, unwavering faith in Jesus. We engage in this battle through grace and righteousness, prayer, and through truth. And the only thing that will keep you from the battle is if you run and try to go where it isn't. But there isn't a place that it isn't. Wherever you go, the battle's going to be. So stay where you are. As Paul the Apostle said, fight the good fight. He's going to win the war. He just needs you to be faithful. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that once again your word comes along and though it takes a little digging it takes a little understanding of the context and the history once we do that we draw principles out of it that are nothing but life-giving and soul instructing to our life father i pray that as we listen to these truths in daniel 10 today about the spiritual battle and how real it is and about how the fact that you have declared the outcome already though we need to engage in the battle and that we can choose the right side of the battle now through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that each person here would not walk out of here today with their head in their sands, but their head in the sand, but walk out here today ready for the battle ahead. God, we've learned today that there is a spiritual realm that is all for your saints. They're all for those who are followers of Jesus, ready to protect and engage. I pray that that protection and engagement would fall upon us. May we love you, may we follow you, may we trust you in all that we say and do. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and his precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.